0: This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book, and is number 6 of the series (coughs) The Hope of Resurrection. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, we are going to read chapter 10 of the Epistle to the Hebrews. We are still dealing with this great chapter of resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in our last study we were noticing the way in which the Apostle deals with the question that was being raised, if this is so, how among how will say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? And we reached in our consideration of it down to the words, verse 20, after the argument had been pursued, but now... Is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept? Well, now he goes back or goes on to take this a stage further. And we commence this evening by this part of the argument, which begins with verse 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. I want to stop here for a minute because this introduces a very basic theme. It's not only basic to resurrection, it's basic to the whole scheme of redemption. And although I should only be referring in passing to verses that you all know full well, uh, that's no reason why we shouldn't have them brought before our attention as a group. And we trust that everyone will be glad to have this reminder. So I go to Hebrews 9. Uh, Hebrews 10 that we've read just now for uh, this insistence. It says, as you remember, in verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And yet, of course, you know that the offerings of bulls and goats were specifically commanded by God and had to be obeyed by Israel. But there was never any idea uh, that the bulls and the goats could take away sins. They were types. Uh, the one great offering which we have outstanding in Exodus is the Passover lamb. But the New Testament says Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And so here, so what was the what was the alternative? If there's no possibility that an animal sacrifice, even though God had ordained it, could possibly take away sin from the conscience, that's what it says. What else could be done? Well, this is the answer of God. Verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. A body hast thou prepared me. Well, that's one of the aspects of humanity, to have a body. And if you'll turn from this to chapter 2 of of Hebrews, you'll find that it's very specific. Verse 14, chapter 2. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, Now it says flesh and blood, you see. In chapter 10, a body has thou prepared me. He also himself likewise took part of the same flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. That's one part of his work. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So he stresses, you notice in this passage, not that he was offered to take away our sins, or to accomplish redemption, as you might have expected in an epistle like Hebrews, but it deals with a question of the wages of sin. So it's all there. To destroy him that had the power of death, and deliver those who all their lifetime were in bondage to the fear of death. Well, what can deliver? What well, the very subject we have. Resurrection. So now, now there's an intimate connection then between the fact that Christ came into this world as a man with a body and flesh and blood and 1 Corinthians 15 when it stresses that he was the first fruits of them that slept because you, you realize don't you that a first fruits must be of the same character the same order you can't have one particular thing being entirely different from the other and be recognized as a first fruits if the first fruits is the barley harvest then the first fruits must be the the ripened ears of the barley. So, we've got this intertwined thought. It doesn't always come on the surface, but it's evidently there all the time. Well, let's think again. You read, when you start the New Testament, when you start the New Testament, what is the first thing that meets your eye? A genealogy. In Matthew, tracing the genealogy of this Christ From Abraham to the birth at Bethlehem and his name Emmanuel, God with us. Or Luke, tracing the genealogy right down from the first man through the line of Mary and coming to the same conclusion. His name should be Jesus, for he shall save. So there's an insistence, not merely on the spirituality and the heavenly glory of this Redeemer, but when he saw that sin must sever. All the chosen heirs from God, then in love which faileth never interposed his precious blood. That's incipient in the hymn that we sang, and it's very much the truth of the scriptures. There was no other way, apparently, that we can conceive all God as described in his word. Well, then, if you turn to the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, and keep in mind these words, I'll, re- I'll read them. First of all, I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 15. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ should all be made alive. There's no doubt about the man, is there? He's named Adam. Well, then we turn to the epistle that was written soon after this. I don't know how long, perhaps a few years. The epistle to the Romans. And there we have in Romans, the fifth chapter, these words. Verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man, Sin entering into the world, and death by sin. Now, there are some people who, with their Bible shut and not being well taught, will tell you that sin has been passed down from Adam right to us today. What do you say? Aren't we sinners? Haven't we got a nature that seemed to be uh, dominated by sin? Oh yes. But it doesn't say sin was passed, it says, and so death passed upon all men. For all have sinned. You see, sin is an act of the will. Sin is something that I do. And that can't be passed on to anybody. But the consequences of what I do can, and the consequences of sin is death. And so we've got the emphasis that it was to cancel the the bondage of fear of death. It was to uh, deal with the fact that by one man death was brought upon the human race, so by one man death has been destroyed, taken away, and exchanged for a gift of immortality in the glorious future. And then one other passage to round this off. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and man, himself man, Christ Jesus. The Revised Version puts it that way, stressing as it does, as it does here, that whatever else you may think of Christ, you must realize that he was a man. For if we have no human savior, we have no redeemer. There's another aspect of it altogether, of course, as you know, Uh, that we must be so careful when we are dealing with the person of Christ that we don't unduly stress one aspect to the undoing of another. We shall see enough evidence of his other side of his nature as we go on. But here we have then in this 1 Corinthians 15, supplemented by these other passages, the stress that there must have been in the mind of God and in the very nature of things, the impossibility of redemption being accomplished apart from man. If man has sinned by man, somehow that sin must be taken away. If man has brought death, then man must take it away. There is an element of uh, law, uh, justice, I suppose, that a man should be judged by his peers, uh, that uh, it is by man that he's judged and against man that he has seen. Well, we leave that now to work its way with us, and we've got one or two points in this passage, which I think will occupy our time as fully as it's possible. 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. As it stands, it could mean that inasmuch as we are all descended from Adam, then every single person that's ever lived on earth or ever will, will be made alive. And there are some who have taken it, and that's what it means. Universal reconciliation of all men, of all ages, of all times, and all nations. Well, if that's true, we must accept it and be glad. I think we've got to remember not to be sorry if somebody proves that more people are going to be saved than we've ever thought. We must watch against that. But on the other hand, we mustn't allow our own feelings and our own predispositions to influence in the study of Scripture. So how are we going to look at this? Supposing we just put it this way, to strike a little different note and then see whether there is truth in it. As sure, I'm not translating now, I'm only just taking it widely. As sure as you're in Adam, brother or sister, you'll die. And as sure as you're in Christ, brother or sister, you'll be made alive. Now it's the in Christ that's the, the key word, you see. He speaks about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And Christ is the firstfruits. Well now is Christ the first fruits of everybody, whether they're believers or unbelievers, saved or lost? Well he say that destroys the idea of a first fruits because there must be a relationship. Well now let's see whether there's a, a guidance, and I believe there is. The people of Israel and their history are the, fill the bulk of the scriptures, don't they? Well now that has not been written merely for the sake of Israel. But we are told that all these things happened unto them for examples. And we can go back again and again and see that a problem that we have is in measure dealt with by seeing how it is related to the people of Israel. So will you come with me again to the epistle to the Romans to see this principle of interpretation in operation. Chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in, and so all Israel shall be saved. Well, do you believe God's word? Yes. You believe that all Israel shall be saved? Yes. Well, that means the whole nation, every single one that's ever descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And yet there are scriptures which seem to speak otherwise. And yet they say, well, you don't believe all means all. Now, one of the troubles with this is that we've started reading the end of a story instead of the beginning. The epistle to the Romans starts with chapter 9, a dispensational section. After having dealt with the doctrine, it deals with dispensation, and then with chapter 12 it starts the practical. Well, surely, if we're going to consider a section of Romans, and it occupies chapters 9, 10, and 11, the, the wisest thing would be to read chapter 9 first, wouldn't it? So, shall we go back and see whether we've missed a little guidance and rectify it? All right. Chapter 9. He says, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. For well, now we know who are Israelites. To whom pertaineth the adoption, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law and the service of God, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Oh, wait a minute. In the same section, he says all Israel shall be saved, chapter 11. (laughs) But in chapter 9, he says here, don't you jump to the conclusion that they're all Israel that have got a literal, physical descent? Oh, this is a corrective then. All right, then we better study this then. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children? I don't know whether anybody in this congregation or those of you in the distant parts of the earth could enumerate the names of all the children of Abraham. I'm one of them that couldn't. I know where to find them. I, I couldn't tell you the name of the children of Keturah, although she was the wife of Abraham. Now then, you see, he says, Oh, no, no, no. They're not all in Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham. Are they all children? Oh, I see. Simply because they're descended from Abraham, they're not children. No, no. Well, what's the key? In Isaac. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. For Abraham had another another son, his name was Ishmael. He doesn't come into the story. In Isaac. Now, Isaac is a picture of Christ. He was given miraculously not quite a virgin birth, I know, uh, but they were as good as dead so far as having children, and then Sarah had the son, Isaac. And then he was re- retrieved from the mountain of being offered now I know thou fearest God, and the Hebrews eleven heaven said he received him back from the dead. So here's a picture of Isaac. Now it's in the risen Christ, the Isaac, that the seed are found. So all Israel are those who are not merely the descendants of Abraham, but those who were in Isaac, well, who are they? Oh, well, if we'd have read on, I should have had been yarning on like this, because the next verse says, that is. Well, that's the apostle going on to explain, so I've been standing in your way, haven't I? That is. They which are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for a seed. The children of the promise are counted for well, you don't say, I've got five children at home and three of them are counted mine. You say, what about the other two? This is something distinct from ordinary physical birth. There was a seed that God had in mind, and that seed is counted for all Israel. So they're not all Israel that are physically descended, but this is a seed of promise. Well, now I go back to Adam. Just in the same way, all in Adam are not all those who literally physically descended from Adam, but the children of a promise are counted for a seed. And you will discover in the scriptures a hint that when Adam was placed upon this earth, he was the recipient and the custodian of a seed of promise that was yet to be born and should yet form the chosen of God. But that was interfered with immediately by the attack of Satan, and so we had, in Genesis 3.15, the first glimpse of two seeds. At least, in my simplicity, I thought that when the Lord said, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed, he was speaking to the serpent, I thought that meant two, but I've been corrected by someone who writes in the scriptures, and so thy seed and her seed mean all one and the same. Can you believe that, friends? If you do, you believe anything. There are two seeds right at the very beginning, and it was the chosen seed that was attacked, the chosen seed that were put into bondage, the chosen seed that were the objects of redemption. Oh, would you say that shuts it all up to election? Well, wait a minute, friends. We are dealing with a purpose. And God hasn't pivoted the purpose of the ages upon whether you will or whether you won't. That's going to be secure. But there are indications in the scripture that he can go a bit wider than his promise. He'll never be narrower. So, all right, if you want the whosoever will, you'll find it in John 3.16. So there's a wider company than the chosen seed. But there is a chosen seed that were attacked. A chosen seed that were sidetracked a chosen seed in Adam that were put into the bondage of sin and death, and they were redeemed by this second man, the last Adam, who came into the world for that specific purpose. So don't let's clutter ourselves up with arguments about whether God could or could not act righteously, unless he saved every man, Jack, or whatnot. We can't argue like that. We can only face facts and deal with the scriptures. But I think I've demonstrated by Romans 9 and Romans 11, It's not sufficient needed to pick out the word all Israel and say that's good enough for me. You've ignored the very principle that was explained in the preceding chapter 9. Well, that's another phase that perhaps we should have to let work in your heart and mind as you test the scriptures and others pass on. We read these um, who are asleep in Christ. We read that... um, they are a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and all points to the fact that it can, cannot be used universally. For, now we'll come back again, as all in Adam, see I've I put it down the other way to get this same feeling that we had in the explanation. For as all in Adam die, even so all in Christ should be made alive. Now that's a blessed truth. Whether, it's a, whether there's a wider purpose of God, let's be glad if there is. But don't let's try to fit it into the scriptures just to satisfy our feelings or pacify somebody else. Now we have another thought introduced in verse twenty three. <coughs> They'll all be made alive, but there's a wonderful variety in God's handi works in nature, and there's a wonderful variety in even the resurrection. It's not going to be all exactly turned out all dear, oh dear. Fancy having a, a sort of a mechanical tape or a machine working and all turning out a whole lot in the resurrection. Oh, we shall all be individuals' friends. Blessed be God. That'll be preserved. I think we'll be a bit better than we are now, but not entirely obliterated. And so it's an every man in his own order. And this particular order is the word that means Rank. I'll go back to Numbers, the second chapter, just to lift out the use of this particular word in the Septuagint. Uh, Numbers 2, 2. There's hardly need for you to turn to it unless you wish to. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Every man of the children of Israel shall pitch by his own standard with the ensign of their father's house, far off about the tabernacle of the congregation shall they pitch. And in that is this word, for taxes this word for rank the um, emphasis here when you read from verse um, down to verse uh, 28 for a moment anticipating and when all things shall be subdued unto him then shall the son also himself be subject unto him you see this subjected word is the word that gives the same idea of, of rank Now who's going to murmur because one star may differ from another star in glory when you see the very Son of God himself submitting to his rank? He's submitting. Who could possibly object to any subjection that may be necessary for the outworking of the purpose of the ages when the Son of God himself at the finish brings before the Father a perfected kingdom that God at long last that God may be all in all. Now we go back on our story. Verse 23. But every man in his own order. First of all, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they were the Christ's at his coming. And then cometh the end. Now I think you should read verse, those words in verse 24. Then cometh the end with the closing words of verse 28 and then fill in the interval afterwards. Then come at the end. What is the end? That God may be all in all. The end that God had from the beginning was that at long last there would be a universe in which there would be no rebellion, no rebellious feelings, but everyone would be in harmony, everyone in their own rank. You see how they've been aspiring above your rank When Adam was put upon the earth, God limited him, but it was a tremendous scope. He had dominion over what we call nature, in the sense of the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, and so on. But look at the way in which he's gone beyond that limitation. I mean, the moon is going to just be bouncing off some of the idiotic songs that will be on television presently. This is what man's doing. And that was where he was sidetracked, If he'd have kept the limited kingdom that was given to him, should he grown up and become strong enough, God would have given him dominion over something else, but he was just lost. He was like a little boy given uh, a fuse or something before ever he knew its constitution and the harm he would do. All Satan knew what he was doing. Because the temptation was to make you wise, not to make you evil, to make you wise. And he got a wisdom beyond his ability. He was given some things that only belong to a grown-up person when he was but a child. And that was the essence of the temptation in the garden. And it's been going on ever since. So now we have this. Then cometh the end. And the goal is reached by a series of stages, steps. And they're introduced by the words when, and then the consequent words then. So will you notice them? The first when is verse 24. When... He shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Well, he shall have doesn't mean it's already been done. It means that is what is going to be done. This will be reached when that time shall have come, when he delivers up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Or when he should have put down all rule and all authority and power. Now, it doesn't say put down all the wicked. He says put down all rule. All authority and power. You see, in the millennium there was a great deal of delegated authority. The twelve apostles were going to sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, that's a delegated authority. Well, that's going to be put down. They won't be reigning over anybody after the millennium is over. You get David sitting upon his throne raised from the dead. But I don't see that carries on into the final stage. All rule, whoever it may be, will stand back and there will be an absolute despot. And the word is actually used in the Scriptures of Christ in 1 Timothy chapter 6. There will be, of course it will be a benign despotism, but there will be nobody ruling, nobody sitting on the throne, nobody giving orders, but the Son of God. And when it reaches that, it's reached something that God has had in his mind all the way through. All this battle and struggle and tears and sorrow at last emerges. Then it says, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that should be destroyed is, here it comes again, death. This intruder into God's universe, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because now, no more sin, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more curse, all at last blotted out. It now goes back to this story. For he hath put all things under his feet. And this is a quotation from the 8th Psalm. And the 8th Psalm deals with Adam. All things under his feet. And you remember they're specified in the 8th Psalm. All sheep and oxen, the fowl of the air, whatsoever you ever through the piles of the sea. See? But it never says that here. And this passage is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. We see not yet all things put under him. And this passage is quoted again in Ephesians 1. Thou hast put all things under his feet and they turn out to be principalities and powers, authorities, thrones, dominions. So Psalm 8 looks back to the limited dominion of Adam the first and looks on to the unlimited dominion of the last man, the second man, the last Adam. And We are all halfway between the two, as it were, but journeying on to that blessed day. So it says, for he hath put all things under his feet and when he saith, all things are put under him it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? And yet how true. All things, even now, doesn't mean all. There's one exception. A glorious exception. So do watch, friends, when you meet that person who says, all means all, and that's enough for me. This is the second time we've come across all meaning not all. There's an exception. And then there's one further thought. There are some people, they don't know much about the Bible, but one thing they do know, They do know that the Apostle Paul did not write the epistle to the Hebrews. So should we look at Hebrews 2 and see how he uses this very same quotation, whoever it was that wrote Hebrews. Verse 6. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honour, and did set him over the works of thine hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now listen. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. That sounds very much like the same sort of argument that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. It sounds very much like the same mind, doesn't it? But now we see not yet all things put unto him, but we see Jesus. So he's got on, gone on another strain there. So I feel that that very fact, that no other writer in the New Testament quotes this psalm except uh, the one who wrote Corinthians, and the one who wrote Ephesians, and the one who wrote Hebrews, is one of the many links that link those three together. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then he is the most wonderful thing of all. A willingly, voluntarily, subjected son. Not a principality, not a power, not a throne, not a dominion, but a son. A son. Oh, how it's stressed in the scriptures. The answer of God over and over again is, he sent his son. And he is that son of God at last. At long last. The fruit of his great redeeming love being now laid at the feet of the Father. And then the the finish, that God. Now there are several in the scriptures that bear the title God, the Father, and Christ has been given the title God, as you can find in Hebrews itself, and in the Old Testament there are the names, but here it doesn't say the Father, here it doesn't say the Son, here it doesn't say the Holy Spirit, it says at long last that God, who has been outside most of these things, God himself we have no knowledge of apart from the revelation of the scriptures and the exhibition of his character in the person and work of Christ. But this is coming now at long last into view, that God may be all in all. Well, I think we have time just to look at a problem. It says in verse 29, Else what shall they do which are baptised for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptised for the dead? And all there's a monstrous teaching been built upon this. Uh, I believe that it is true that the uh, in Salt Lake City in Utah, the Mormon centre, their great temple there, they have the greatest collection of genealogies and pedigrees in the world. And the reason for that is they've adopted this verse and supposing you said, now, I'd very much like to feel that my grandfather was going to heaven, and I don't think he was a Christian. Well, I believe you could write to the temple at Utah, you could send your birth certificate, and they would uh, trace it, and they would discover that you were the legitimate grandson of that grandfather, and now you could be baptized for him. That's what they do. Does he mean that? Well, if he does, well, we all better get busy because we've got plenty of pagan and sinful parents, grandparents and ancestors. At least I have. Two of the most wicked people I think I ever knew were my godfather and my godmother. I don't know whether you've been in the same predicament. But does it mean that? Because if only we let the apostle Paul go on instead of doing all this. Verse 30. Well, why stand we in jeopardy every, every hour? I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Now this is all going on. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts and Ephesus, what advantage is it be if the dead rise not? Don't you see, if we've gone straight on, else what shall they do which are baptised? Stop there for a minute. What shall they do that are baptised? If the dead rise not, but have been baptised into a living death. He said, that's what I'm telling you, I died, ain't he? He wasn't asking anybody to be baptised for him. He said, the moment a Christian in those early days became a baptised believer, he was exposed to persecution, martyrdom and death. He says, I'm in the same predicament, and I've had a fight with beasts at Ephesus. And he was there in jeopardy of his life, and so many died for the truth. So, you needn't think that it means you've got to be baptized for the dead. He says, Oh, no. If there be no resurrection of the dead, with a all men most miserable, we've been baptized into a living death, which we might have escaped if we'd just kept quiet. I protest, he says, by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead rise not? Why should I have been baptised? Why should I believe Christ? Then he he adds these words, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It doesn't mean to say that that was his code, but he says that's all it comes to. There are so many people who, without reading the scriptures, they stand out that the apostles said, Let us eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But you see, the poor wretches can't even be merry in their little life. It's not there. Oh, there is a passage elsewhere where it says, Let, let's eat, drink and be merry, but I'll leave you to find it. He simply says, if there be no resurrection, it amounts to this. Let's eat and drink. That's all. For tomorrow we die. Be not deceived, he said. Evil communications corrupt good manners. he's quoting from a heathen poet. It doesn't mean to say that he was putting this heathen poet onto the level of scripture. But if a heathen poet tells you the truth, it's truth, friends. And you needn't endorse all he says. And he's reminding them that they've got in their own literature enough to say, don't you see, if you get hold of a wrong idea, it will give you a wrong manner of life. Hang on to the fact that you've been onto to a living, glorious, victorious saviour. And your manner of life will change and and be with it. So he quoted that. And then he gives his own, which is the sequel. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And that brings this section to a conclusion on that note. He says, you are associated with the risen Christ. You will be awakened from the dead, and share in the glory of his resurrection. Well, what about awaking now? He took the same line you remember in Ephesians, when he says, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Let us redeem the time, now, in this present time. So, we must keep in mind that this most marvellous teaching of the resurrection is exceedingly practical in its outworking. There could be nothing that should influence our lives down here so much as intimately as the fact that it's only a prelude and a poor one at that to the life which is life indeed, as it's put by Paul later on writing to Timothy. So we've just canvassed a few of the points that come in this 1 Corinthians 15. Let me remind you, watch the words, as in Adam all die, and check over with Romans 9 and 11. Work that out for yourselves about the word all. And then... Notice the little suggestion the way in which the words are quoted from Psalm 8 by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 are very, very similar to the quotation in Hebrews chapter 2 and then this question of being baptised for the dead has imposed upon some people an extraordinary ceremony and I suppose put a good deal of money into the coffers of the people who go through the ceremony for you you can't do it without paying a fee of course friends and then we come back to the call to you and to me. If we have been uh, associated with the risen Christ even now, let us begin to manifest, because it says that he shall quicken this mortal body. Although the outward man is perishing, the inward man is now being renewed, awake to righteousness. And then he seems to say, uh, because others have not, some have not the knowledge of God, It means to say that if you have been brought into this saving knowledge of Christ, one of the most expected things would be that you will immediately turn around and begin to say, oh, I wish this other person that I know learned that too. And I suppose the more we think about our responsibility to others in making known the glorious salvation which God has given to us, the more it will be easy for us to walk worthy of our calling while we have this pilgrim pathway to tread. Well now from, from this verse he comes to the second of these questions. You notice the the um, the way in which it's uh, put on the chart here 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 58. First of all he says um, the fact of resurrection how say some of you there'll be no resurrection of the dead. He brings Adam into the story and death is destroyed and then he gives them an exhortation to awake. Well when we meet together in our next meeting we shall have the second half of this. They no longer ask the question whether the resurrection's a fact, but they want to know how are the dead raised up? That's the next question. And then Adam comes into the story again, and this time instead of saying death is destroyed, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he has an exhortation, not this time to awake, but be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord. So we have one more meeting before we have covered in this rapid way 1 Corinthians 15. I trust that you have had enough uh, of this ministry to realise how valuable this chapter is and is well worth all the attention we can give it. The fact of resurrection has been created and dealt with. The manner of resurrection we leave until we come to our study next time. But it wouldn't be very harmful to us to so notice that the first reply of the apostle is, Thou fool. I-, I couldn't say that to you, but I can quote him, friends, and I quote it to myself. There are some questions which are, as you remember, the apostle says, foolish questions. And that's one of them. For so how God Himself to describe to us how He raised a dead person to life, I suppose passes the ability of any of us to conceive. But we'll leave that to tell its story, God willing when we meet together at our next opportunity.